What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey everyone, it's Yas here and I'm calling today with a little favour to ask. Over the recent weeks and months, I've had loads of you get in touch with some great questions and today I'm going to be trying something new with the show. I'm trialling a Q&A segment where I'll be joined by a co-host and elite coach educator, Gerard Jones. Now these are discussions which are going to be taking place every Sunday evening at 7.30 GMT live on Twitter space if you wanted to get involved directly. Otherwise, I'll be releasing them here every Wednesday on the Coaches Network podcast. So for today's format, it's slightly different and for around about 30 minutes, each discussion will be dedicated to a question that has been sent in where myself and Joa will be going into some real depth and sharing our views and opinions on the topic in order to leave you with some key takeaways to consider in your own environments. So the favour I'm asking for today, guys, is if you could let me know your thoughts on the new format and you can do this by getting in touch on Twitter at The Coaches Net. Once again, that is at The Coaches Net. And of course, if you have a question, feel free to send that in too. Hope you enjoy the new format. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Straight to the point really, and obviously the series is preparing you for the UEFA B licence in the past couple of weeks, we've spoken about the role of coach, role of practice, uh, the principles of play. Um, and obviously today we're going to be looking at using match day to inform practice. But it's just maybe a brief summary on some of the key messages which have come out for you over the last few weeks in particular. Um, and I know that you're, you know, you're quite similar to me and you'll be very reflective. And even just us having a conversation about it might just spark off some different views and different perceptions as to what we had before we went into it. So... I'll start with that and we'll deep dive into today's topic. Yeah, I would say just overall, everything comes back to who's who's the, the person in front of us, what's the level of players that we're working with, what's the context, the environment that we're in. I think having a very clear idea and an identity, not only as, as uh, how you want to play for your tees, but also you as a coach, what's your brand? So that was something that we spoke about before. I think starting with the idea and the game and what makes the game the game and understanding the principles, but using that identity to to create that sort of framework, if you like. So we've we talked about different moments in the game and the principles that underpin the game that don't change no matter what shape, formation, animation, you know, positions, whatever, it doesn't matter, you know. The, the principles exist in everything that, that the game gives us and it's using the game as a, a starting point really and that feeds into today 
you know, we talked about uh, tactical principles and, and, and sub-principles for the game and then individual actions and what we meant by that. And I think I'll, the most important thing that is obviously how do you train it? And I think that's where we probably see today going as well, which is using the match data for practice. But ultimately, you know, key messages around seeing the coaches as a, as a game learning designer, you know, where we're presenting problems for players to solve. Sorry, Gerard, you dropped off really quietly um, in the last couple couple things that you said. I didn't even touch it. I was just saying the last bit was the coach is a learning designer, a game problem designer. I don't know if there's anything else you'd want to add. Yeah, no, I think it's just really just encompassing that, you know, it's as much for me about working through the units, working through your team as a, as a whole, not just looking at the individual always. I think um, the way in which score has kind of been, if you like, framed for me is if you look at the journey on level one through to four, level one is, well, what does a practice look like? What could a practice look like? Um, level two is much more around, well, what, what does it look like coaching 25% of the group? So really you, you're focusing on smaller numbers. Um, whereas level three, you're kind of more gearing towards maybe 60, 70% of the group. Um, and I'm, when I say group, I mean in the context of your team, and obviously the A license, when you start working up towards level four, you're now looking at right, how do I effectively work across all four, um, so all, all phases of the team. So, you know, from back to front, goalkeeper right through to the strikers or whichever way around you do it. But fundamentally looking at the piece around who are your primary players, who are your, who are your secondary players, who are your tertiary players. Um, so really looking at, you know, making sure that you get across and how you're able to link those messages from one player to the next, whether they're in the same unit or into the next unit. Um, and just to be clear on that, you know, when we're talking about units, we're talking going from players and, you know, potentially a defensive uh, line to moving into those that are playing in the midfield areas and obviously then those playing in the, in the, in the final third. So those are probably the key things for me. But, you know, I think it's really interesting to kind of see where we go with this one tonight in terms of using match day to inform practice. Um, you know, where does your mind go straight away with this one, Gerard? I think you spot on. A lot of detail there. I'm just focusing on units and then the the sort of relationships. Um, it's funny, actually, because as I'm listening to you, I'm sort of drawing from some research where I remember years ago when I did my UA for B, this is back in 2000 and I think it was like 2010. We were in 2010, so like around that. And I remember there was a, a rule that one of the educators, uh, Gary Batley, said, he used to work at Leeds. He said, you, you've got to have a minimum of three or more players to, define, to be classed as a unit. And then it's interesting now, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Yaz, but then you look at the modern game and the future game, and you could argue that in some cases there might be players where it's two as a unit. Does it have to be three or more? And then I'm just thinking about relationships within like neuroscience, not going off on a topic, but I was on a call the other day um, where it was quite fascinating where uh, one of the professors, Vincent Walters, who's a, an expert in this sort of area and learning, and he was talking about the power of four, like four and below. 
where you develop relationships with people and there's like a magic number of how many sort of things you can focus on at any given time. And then we were talking about, well, how does that influence then the sort of structures, if you like, or the relationships that you, you're buddying people in together? So what partnerships are you organising? That got me thinking, well, for a football standpoint and more at the B level, but even further, how are we designing sessions where we're developing relationships between players that were... So, of course, you know, in the shape and animation, players will move. But ultimately, there's certain players you'll have relationships. I mean, you alluded to it. It could be a, a central uh, defenders partnership. It could be the relationship between your goalkeeper and your back four or back three or whatever. Or an animation, it might be a back two, right? The relationship between your wide players and your front players. and So, like, how are we designing environments where they get repetitions with each other? So it's almost like a dress rehearsal for the game. So it's not manufactured, but this, the, the the developing that game understanding. So do you pair them in up? So I think like going back to using the the match day to inform practice, where my head went was when we're watching the game, do we analyse the game and like cut almost like pieces of the pie, if you like, where it's like that little segment, that little moment or that area so you're identifying, but first you've got to have obviously an observation uh, tool or method. US soccer talk about an observation structure. You've got to have a way in which you view the game and analyse it, interpret it. But then from that, how are you chunking information? So what players are involved? It comes back to your five W's, doesn't it? Who, what, when, where, why? So I think that's where, you know, using back state to inform practice, where my mind goes, because I'm looking at, well, at this particular moment, it could be a 5v3 in this area, it could be a 3v3, it could be this, it could be that. And then what players are involved in that area, how often, at what intensity, and how do you design environments that look like the games? So you're, you're using the match day problems to, to inform how you design a, a reality-based environment that looks like their game, talking about units and stuff. It looks real to what would happen in that area of the field in that moment. And that's where you can design those those representative learning environments to, to inform practice. Yeah, now I've got my hand up there because I was just going to add on to that. I think it's just it's just so important. You know, you talked there about the, the five W's, but I think we often forget the H. And, you know, the, the, I guess the visual that I've always been given was effectively looking at it as uh, five bums on a goalpost, Right. And, I, and I'll share an image in a second of what that what that actually looks like practically. But it's that how piece, the, the who, the what, the why, the when, the where is great. Um, but how? And I think that's the piece when I'm now thinking about from your UEFA B standpoint and working towards that and actually how you develop the ability of the players and, and, and their understanding of what's expected of them, if you like. It's how often are we actually doing the work to help them understand how to achieve these things, not just the what not just the why, not just the where, not just the when. And obviously we want to give them a bit of opportunity to have some creativity and freedom around exploring what the process could look like for them. But I think I think objectively we also need to have a method that we can support and refer them to potentially for them to kind of achieve that. So, um, yeah, I think there's some good points in it. I think you know, beyond that, it's just looking at, well, coming back to your initial question about the units, I'm thinking, well, 
it's interesting you how, how you've how you've kind of suggested that, you know the individual said that you know a unit is three or more. I've actually looked at it from a completely different perspective. Well, actually, a unit is an area is an area where a team operates. So, as an example of that, you know, whether the defensive line has two in it or six in it, that's a unit. is 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 a it's a piece of the jigsaw in the team, if you like. So there's four fundamental units, and you can argue there's three, but I think the goalkeeper in itself. I think the only reason you might not consider the goalkeeper a unit is because they're by themselves as a goalkeeper. But effectively, how many of us consider the goalkeeper as part of the defensive unit? So when you're looking at the structure of your formation, if you want to strip it right back as a as a four four two, then you might argue there's three units there. But obviously, with the introduction of the goal, you know the the focus around the goalkeeper rather, a lot of people referring that now to as a one four four two. But actually, if you've got a one two four two six whatever it is. Well, every time you break up, surely that's a new unit. It's just a way to consider it. And if you think if you break it down that way, I think you start to shine a different lens on it to the point where it becomes a bit more microscopic and you have to be a bit more detailed and, I guess, analytical in your observations of what actually that unit does and how that unit operates. Um, and probably it's probably even just a challenge and a consideration of the thought for coaches to think, well, yes... I'm calling it a two four two two whatever it is or a three five one one but actually is that because you want the players to understand that's the shape or because fundamentally those roles within that setup are different units and how that then influence one another if that makes sense I think that's where the game's gone now hasn't it because that's that's my whole point from before is that I think almost even in coach education, we had such a rigid view on what the game looks like and, and how to define what's realistic and what's not. That's why I'd always argue it's not, not necessarily realism, it's more preference when people start using that sort of terminology. And I would say, ultimately, it's exactly as you said, you could have two. I mean, the goalkeeper is, is a part of the back line. So he's part of that unit, especially with how you... If, if, part of your game idea is to to construct the attack from the back and build from the back, um, then he's a huge part of that. He's like an extra centre-back. But in certain areas of the field, it's funny, I was watching uh, some old clips the other day of Fabian Bartes, if anyone can remember him at United, where he's dribbling out of the back and he's stepping into midfield and people talk about Neuer and people like that now, but Fabian was doing that back in the day and there was many others. And it just made me chuckle because it was a random thing that came up from a conversation with a couple of coaches. But when I started to study it more, I thought, but look how the goalie in different moments is a part of different units, depending on how you play the game. And then I just shared a video for everyone to look at. It's only a minute and 30 seconds, but it just plays the game in full. It's an example from Brighton and Manchester United. Uh, But you can see if you were to look at the game and then to sort of zone in on those players that are involved, going back to the five doubles, but like you say, the how, it's not necessarily the what, it's the how, then you can start to think about how you might design your practice to recreate that particular scenario and that problem. And I think that's how we can use the the game, you know, as a starting point, really. Everything should go back to the game and to inform our practice. It's got to look like what uh, the situations they're going to see. And then, you know, I like Tony's piece a minute ago where he says, you know, do you think that some of the language around coaching puts people off? 
And uh, I saw your response as well, Yaz. I think it's a great point. I think language is what brings our game to life. And I think we're, we're relating it back to the match day. Again, if we're using terminology that makes sense to the players, we're going to have a greater transfer for learning. I think often it's so we're always guilty of overcomplicating the game or coming up with new buzzwords. We're all guilty of it. But actually, what does the game look like? And just talk simple language and, uh, and create these sort of pictures in the minds of the players because that's, that's what's going to inspire them to, to look for, for more triggers, look for more actions and relate the game to their game. Because I think there's often a danger where, you know, if we're talking about using the match day to inform practice, we can often, as coaches, impose our view of the game upon the players by imposing our perception and our view of it. But actually, there's a greater advantage to tap into what does the player see? What does the player feel? What what have they experienced within that game? How have they seen that problem? Because we're tapping into their perception we can they might have a, a better solution than we have, but we can also guide their their intentionality. So I think that's a huge skill of the coach is not necessarily always imposing their view, but actually what did the player see in that moment and how can we use that to inform our design by co designing with the player? Yeah, just just really quick, you made a great point there. I just want to add on to that. So, you know, you mentioned there about are, are they seeing that? Pro- are they seeing the problem as well? Well, I think one of the better questions to probably think about here is, is well, Rich, um, Gerard, is that is what we're considering a problem even a problem for the players, or is it a problem for my eyes? Right? Is it is, is is when they see that situation, do they even think, oh yeah, that, you know, that's that's putting me under pressure? And I think it's really important for us to kind of look at that as well and examine, right? Okay, well, where does the, if you like the landscape begin and end in terms of the problems that the players are, are seeing as opposed to the one that we're putting in front of them. And then having an understanding of that is, I think, is really key as well because I think it's great to say, you know, we want players to have different solutions. We want them to be creative. We want them to have account, uh, ownership on their their development and all these things. And I think it's, it is a great, obviously, lens to look through in terms of developing the players and helping the players get better. But fundamentally... It's their experience, which will fundamentally, you know, dictate what the, I guess, the curriculum, the syllabus, or the scheme of work that you're working to, actually should look like. So, in the context of obviously using match day to inform practice, and one of the other considerations for me is just ensuring that we don't become reactive and responsive to what's just happened in the game before, but actually become a bit more observant and analytical and assess right what's actually happened in the game, rather than what was the outcome of it. So, as an example, rather than suggesting, oh, do you know what the opposition. They were fantastic today. They they put in some great crosses. Okay, possibly. But how often has the opposition actually put in some crosses against you to understand whether the great crosses were actually the, a great cross or whether it's actually... There's just a general problem with our team in the way that we defend crosses in the first place. But on this occasion, they had someone who could convert every time the cross was put in. Therefore, it highlighted, the, highlighted it even further as a, a problem to deal with, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think as well, just, just adding on to it is how important is objectivity? So you talk a lot about looking at the game and the view. This is where, as coaching, I think a lot of the, the stuff we can often do at times is is subjective. And yes, there has to be some 
subjectivity and the objectivity. But ultimately, if we're looking at analysing the game to inform our practice, then there needs to be an objective measure within that. So a big part of that is also understanding the context, like you just alluded to, including the context and the whole context, because that informs a lot of things. And uh, what was interesting, I took this away from the B, is actually if we're creating uh, an analysis tool of how we view the game, how reliable is it? Because if we look in the same direction and we observe the same things, we're always going to inform that same analysis. You know, you've got confirmation bias, you've got various other biases, information bias and so forth. You know, and, and actually how reliable is the information that we're looking at in terms of low reliability, high reliability, that type of thing. Um, is the observation relevant to our principles and our game idea and our objectives? How on the bullseye is it? You know, so I think there's a huge opportunity there for coaches to actually, whenever they're looking at the game, have a clear measure tool to go, well, describe what you saw. But is it factual and objective? What data can you use to support your analysis? So it's not just an assumption that we're not defending very well. Well, how do you know that? You know, I had to do a task recently and I was looking at the the pressing actions per pass. I was looking at the distances we'll press in, the distances both horizontally and vertically between the lines. And the simplest thing of all, without overcomplicating it, was what areas of the field were we pressing and when did we regain the ball, when didn't we? But what areas were we typically defending in? And I was able to look on the field. These are where we've applied pressure. And just as a simple sort of heat map, if you like, then looking at the players involved in that, I'm then able to use that data to go, right, that's where I thought the ball was tipping. That could be a problem area of the field, but was it? You know, because I remember someone else watching the same game felt that there was a bigger problem higher up the field. But when you actually look at the data, it was initially starting in the middle of the field. So again, how can you use data to inform what your eyes see? So to create that objectivity. Because ultimately, when we're analysing the game, we're, we're trying to identify trends and patterns, if you like, just so our brain can comprehend what's, what's going on. I think from then, it's then having a, a sort of clear filter. So, you know, before observing, you've got clear filters of what you'll focus on. They're your observation filters. What will you count as measurable evidence or data? And how will you how are you going to collect that information? Because then you can use that to observe, you know, main principles, sub-principles, the, the actions that players are doing and so forth. And you can use that to then make sure that you, you're creating an analysis that's based on what actually happened and also understanding the context of what's going on, you know, which is a big factor. Where are they in the season? Where What's the minute in the game? What's the score? How does that influence this? You know, because we can often assume things are going well or, or bad, but we've got to take into account the score. That's a huge part of it. So I think there's certain steps that you can go to. And then ultimately, how do you use that to inform your practice? You know, there's some of the best practices people do. It's scenario-based. You know, you've got your, your key players, you've got your primary players, you're talking about the triggers that you want them to see, you, you, you're working on your principles, you've got clear, defined shapes and units, it all looks realistic. But what about the scenario? How do you create the pressure? You know, 
how do you recreate that pressure culture in the environment? And part of that could be, hey, you're two 0 down with ten minutes to go. Off you go, go figure it out. Hey, you're two 0 up with ten minutes to go. How does that change how you're going to act? Or you've just scored, you've just conceded, and there's only two minutes before half time. What do you do now? Or you've just come back one one half time, and you're going into second half or whatever, or you're a man down. You know, these are things that it's all what ifs. I think you mentioned this last week. Yeah, it's what if coaching, and I think that's where you can start to implant certain scenarios and that difference and that variability within your practice because ultimately that's the game if we're talking about using match day to inform practice well what is the match day the game is a constant contest for the ball there's two teams contesting possession of the ball and territory it's unpredictable it's random and it's forever changing and there's a pressure and by the way score does matter (laughs) and you've got to score more goals than the opponent and it's directional, and we're attacking one end and we're defending the other. So how do you recreate that into your environment? And So for me, your practice has to be variable. It has to be unpredictable. Uh, Brace some of the chaos. It has to be involving difference, like within the activity. So there could be different areas where the ball's coming in from different angles. We're working on a principle, but are they getting meaningful repetitions of it? And it's that that difference, that repetition without repetition. And again, are they are they doing it under changing circumstances? So these are all the things that, again, if, we, if we're really talking about the match day, well, what does their match day look like? I think that's where we're in a, such a beautiful age now, especially anyone going on to the B licence and further. There's so much data out there. I'd encourage anybody to, you know, of, of course, go on our platforms, but... Utilise the FIFA Training Centre, Google UEFA Technical Reports, FIFA Technical Reports, look at some of the competitions at the top level. Obviously, that'll give you an insight of there, but there's certain trends that you can look at to inform your practice. There's also a lot of stuff with the FA where we've analysed games at grassroots level. How many touches does it take to finish a 77, 99, 11, 11? What are some of the actions in possession, out of possession that we're seeing at certain age groups? Because then you can start to think about, well, it's all right we're saying, you know, Man United, Brighton. But actually, what does that look like at the level I'm working at, under-16s? So does it look like their game? And that's where I think there's a lot of data out there now. and There's a lot of real clear objective evidence. Use that to inform your practice because that's the game. So if we're saying we're not just putting rules for the sake of rules in a practice of one-touch finish, that's great one-touch finish, but why? You know, if Yaz or whoever was to ask you, why are you doing that? Have you got a, a valid reason? And I think that's where it's got to go back to, well, what does their game look like? Just a couple of things from me, as there. No, I think some great points. And, I'm, you know, just going to add on to that. But, you know, I think I, I was looking around thinking you got a camera on my phone because you literally you're making notes and you literally said everything was on my list. <laughs> but... um I think the key things are really looking at well, what what do the numbers actually tell us? You know, we always go after the data, but what what does it actually tell us? So as an example, you know, you talk there about the FIFA training center and all these things that I think it's really important that we kind of really distinguish that from what it looks like at one end of the spectrum in comparison to where we're currently working. And, and you know, the best example I always, I always think about when you know when it comes to this match day stuff and um, is. When I hear an under eight, un, under eights coach tell me, "Yeah, we you know my team's been excellent at playing out from the back," well, they better be if there's a retreat line in place. <laughs> um, 
and you know just looking at the context of the game itself like how much are you actually looking at what's allowed to happen in your players game as opposed to what they're actually overcoming in their game um and i think that that's a real key thing for me and then obviously talking about informing practice you know scenario scenario work is great because like you said i think it does fundamentally make a difference but you've got to ask yourself what what does this mean what does the scenario look like that they're actually commonly facing? What 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 kind of opposition are they maybe not getting enough experience with? Um, and you know, having that what if, like you said, I think that what if piece is so important because you need to be able to exhaust the strategies of, well, this is what I want to do. This is what's gonna. You know, there's going to be a reason why a strategy works, and there's going to be something that effectively counters that at some point. So, do you know what will counter it? And if so, what do you do then? I think one of the key things that kind of stood out for me at, at, at UEFA-B when I did mine in particular, and obviously things have developed, is understanding that, yes, there's different practice types, yes, there's different things but um, that you might go after within your practices, but actually, what's the practice that your players need? And I think that's probably one of the th biggest things that I, think I would say has changed over time um, with the UEFA-B. It's just not, not an expectation of there being certain specific types of practices, but just getting comfortable using bigger spaces, bigger areas where possible, because fundamentally, and this is, I think, this is something that really needs to be highlighted, is you are working towards the 11v11 game eventually. So even if you're working in the 9v9 game or you're working with 7v7 or 5v5 at the moment, we talked about it last week, the principles are still the same. So how do you get the players to understand and develop a, develop a better understanding of the principles so that they become better equipped to play the game regardless of the format they're playing in? Um, and then obviously beyond that, it's just looking at, right, like you said, that data around, well, how many touches does it take to, you know, does it take for them to finish? What type of finishes do they usually get in their games? What type of chances do they usually create in their games? And these are all the things that you can start to, you know, inform the practice. So, for instance, if you are an under sevens, do you really need to work on crossing? Does it really look like a cross when you put it in? And if it is, you know, in comparison to maybe an under 14s, 15s, Okay, well, let's work on the crossing and finishing. But what type of crosses are we typically getting? And not because that's the right and it's the only way to get things done, but that's a common trend of what happens in our games. Our, our wingers seem to be putting a lot of crosses a lot across the face of the goal, low cutback crosses towards the edge of the six-yard box or just entering the second six-yard box, if you like. Well, how often do you actually practice that so that your strikers or whoever's coming on to finish it is actually getting the opportunity to practice that finish? And then... In, there's something that I've always kind of stayed with me with that is you know there is that argument of well do we get too specific? Well I'd rather be specific and my players understand what we're going after so that they can get they can put more effort and have a better guidance on the direction that we're going in than being too sporadic and you know fundamentally looking like Eric Ten Hag's Man United right now. No idea what they're doing. Um, but it's really important for us to understand that the match day has so much insight for us to kind of gather and and, and pick up on. That we just need to open our lens, and I think a great point that you mess, um, you, you shared earlier, Gerard, is just constantly looking at it from a different perspective. Because if you keep looking at it from the same one, you're just going to end up with the same answers and the same solutions. So I think it is important not just to pick up different coaching positions. Um, obviously, on a match day, it's a bit more challenging depending on the environment you're working, whether you in a way you can stand or where you can observe the game from. But you know, it doesn't always have to be our observations; it could be that of the players. So think about how you involve them in, in detailing to you what they've observed, what they've experienced and what they've thought about the, the game itself. So, I mean, there's just a few ideas for me in particular, Gerard. But, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's anything that you want to kind of tail off the back end of that. But I think it's really important to understand that 
for me, the biggest consideration is not to be too reactive and just be a bit more observant and analytical around, right, here's what's happened in the match day, but do I understand why or what it took to allow that to happen or stopped it from happening and then use that almost as the basis to design my sessions? Yeah, I think that's a great place to end on, really. And uh, I'm curious, you know, everyone listening, you know, thoughts from, from other people in the room. How does it look in your environment? You know, how, how does this conversation influence maybe your thinking? Or is it, have you got a different thinking? What are some of the things that you guys are currently doing? Because that's, ultimately, it's, it's about everyone listening. You know, what does it look like in their everyday environment? That's where I'm interested in, you know, how are you using match day? I mean, one of the best... Ones I saw recently, which was quite cool, was just quantifying the data. So they've analyzed the game. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But then they're looking at defining, well, what does success look like? What is not successful look like? And then when they actually plan the session, having personal goals for the session, which is a really fascinating one. What's your personal goal? What do you want to get out of the practice tonight? And then what do you want to get out of activity one? to activity three and how does that relate to the game problem that you've identified but you know as I say one of the best ones I saw recently he was then able to look at his training session he watched the video back which is always helpful you saw if you've got that and um, he was able to quantify and go well actually this many um, passes were successful but there's why or this many words so again what are your metrics for success within the session as well because that's a huge huge factor Lizza, how's it going? Lizza, are you okay? Do you want to unmute? Oh, sorry. I thought I was unmuted already. Um, <laughs> no, you're good. How, how are you? Just, uh, just to introduce myself, I'm, I'm Lizza Ryan. I'm doing a master's at DCU, um, Dublin City, in sport performance. And my thesis topic is on match day communication. So 
I'm kind of right now I'm just in the midst of filling out my ethics and starting the research, but um, I want to conduct kind of a holistic approach on match day communication. So look at uh, do an interview, kind of getting the coach's background perspective first on the way that they think they communicate during a match um, and then using video analysis and hopefully audio recording, which might be difficult um, to get an overall perspective. So get their perception of the way they coach and then the actual way that they coach when it comes to match day. So it'll be interesting. I love that. I've got a couple of questions for you on that. I mean, be interested to see how you're using maybe semi-structured interviews and if you're micing them up, and then you can probably see, you know, what areas, what players are getting most information. And obviously context has a huge factor in this, but it'd be interesting to see, are they directing most of the communication to certain players who are nearest to the sideline or certain players based on how they want to play, based on the moment? Because ultimately the, the game might be presenting a certain problem. So I might have to focus more on my communication on a certain area of the field or certain players on the field because of that the situation in the game and then how much of their information is directive is it hustle you know what's what's your thoughts around that yeah well I think well a lot of what I've read so far it's context is key like you mentioned and um I think the the research so far just indicates that it's going to be hard to I want to see if there's commonalities between two coaches um in the way that they they use their match day communication, but it's obviously going to be related to their context and the team and um, the match itself, the environment. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm kind of, I, I think it's, that's going to be one of the biggest challenges of the research itself is um, seeing if there are any similarities in their coaching style um, just because yeah, context the context is is um is going to be different and also it's interesting you know coaches have their own styles and their way of coaching and the way they get to their athletes so um how does that how does that play a role and you know oftentimes i think we think about the best coaches as being the, the most innovative and the ones that kind of take a leap and do something different so i wonder if that's going to show in in the the research and is that a measure of success? Um, and how do you measure success for the, how do you measure a coach's match day success is also a tough, a tough do you know, one. A consideration for the thing to think about is one, it'd be really interesting to get some insight on is actually when, and maybe potentially which, which, which federation or which um, coach developers in particular led their education pathway and who's been involved in that pathway in terms of a mentoring capacity as well. I think there'd, there'd probably be some really, are really interested in to see when people actually complete those qualifications and how that's potentially informed their practice as well. So just something to think about for, you know, as you were speaking there. Yeah, and I was also thinking, does there need to be commonality? You know, me and Yas could be on the sideline, but we might have different approaches, different styles. And that doesn't mean that that's good or bad. And actually, I might have to adapt my style based on a certain approach to try and get the message across. So I don't know if there necessarily has to be a commonality. The big thing you'll find, because I've done this with my own research, is that when you ask coaches you know, to reflect on how accurate they are at 
asking questions or giving information or whatever, their recall is terrible. <laughs> Just typically, we're very bad at it. And then if you ask the players, they're normally a little bit more accurate. They'll be able to tell you because they're feeling it. Um, so you'll see some stuff there. But ultimately, what will be fascinating in the future is where are they looking to give information? You know, so some of the stuff that I'm doing, my own doctorate, is I'm putting Kogi goggles on the coach. So I'm tracking where their eyes are looking before they give information because that's obviously a, a huge factor in what they're seeing and how that influences what comes out of the mouth. You know, how much is... And probably ties back to the B as well, Yaz, right? How much is on the ball? How much of your actions is focusing on the ball versus off-ball actions? Because typically a lot of coaching is on-ball. How much can be more off-ball actions? Um, I, I can't remember if it was Paul, but I remember somebody... Um, saying to me once that one of the... Actually, it was Rusty Earnshaw. Rusty Rusty said that he did a, a visit once years ago when uh, Frank Lampard was at Derby County. And he said he was one of the best off-ball coaches he saw in the session just because they, and they measured it. So it wasn't just an opinion, it was fact, uh, which was typical to how Frank used to play. And apparently he was constantly scanning, he was constantly looking off the ball. When the ball was in a certain area, he's constantly looking at the defensive position, the units and the start positions of everybody else before he gave information. So, And a lot of his coaching was typically off the ball, around the ball versus on the ball. So I think linking back to the B, again, on the ball, off ball, around the ball, away from the ball, those, those are the things of like how much of your, your interactions are based around those sort of circles of influence. I don't know if there's anything you want to add on that one, Yaz. No, I think it just kind of ties into what uh, Tony said in the comments there about, you know, he probably communicates with more players on the opposite side of the pitch because <laughs> their parents are in their ears all the time. And I think there is a consideration there. And I, it's something I've... It's interesting. I was having a conversation with a coach recently about this, the fact that how much time you spend in observing whether they're actually trying, whether they're actually um, receiving information on, on, on other areas of the pitch, whether that be from the parents or the players. And who are they actually being influenced by? Because obviously these are key things, right? Because they could be conflicted messages as well. And I guess it links back into one of our previous uh, conversations that we've had around, well, how do we get better at collaborating with parents? And I think it's very much about sharing the approach, the the methodology and, and the strategies that we're looking to you know, deliver and implement with the players to the parents as well, because then those messages can be more consistent. So I think that's probably the one key thing that kind of just jumped out at me as you guys were speaking there. Um, but I think you know if we if we you know on the topic of obviously using match day to inform practice, I think it is really key. Like on a match day, fundamentally everything is linked to what's happening in the game. So I think it's really you know interesting that we you know we're talking about designing practices as coaches all the time. But how often are we actually saying, well, what does that actually look like for my team on their game day, as opposed to, oh, I just saw Harry Kane score this great goal. I'm going to set up a practice to deliver that for my players. Well. In the nicest way possible, if your player could do what Harry Kane would do, you you probably wouldn't be in your environment. Um, so I think it's just really realistic about where the players are, what they, like you said, and I think you both touched on it there around what the, what does success look like both on a match day and in training, and having those clear goals and obviously success. I mean, I think one of the key things I, I'm just thinking, reflecting back on my journey as a, a when I was doing UEFA B as well, is well, what does practice look like for a player who's probably not a key player in the session. What does that success look like? 
What does success look like for the key players within the session? Is it much more focused focus around the outcome? Obviously, we know we've got there's a big emphasis on the four corners, looking at it from tech, tech, psych, social, and even a physical corner. Does it always have to be a tech, tech outcome? Or can you link um, the primary outcome of maybe a physical or social outcome or even a psychological outcome to the tech, tech? So, and I, I think it's really important for us to understand that those things can't be isolated because fundamentally, in my opinion, they're all in, they're all interlinked and it's just, there is a, you know, almost like a pie chart, if you like, and it's just how much percentage of your, of your pie you're going to give to this as opposed to that. Um, but understanding that fundamentally, they all have a knock-on effect to one another. So, yeah, it's probably a piece that I'll just add on now. I don't know if you've got anything you want to build or expand on beyond that. No, nothing to add. All good. The only thing I was thinking we we haven't spoke about, but it's just things that people could use is, of course, you could use the match day to, to create great reflection opportunities. You could use it for video analysis, for self-learning, get players to watch the games. So it's not always us sending videos. I've seen some great work where people have clipped games and shared it with a, a lot of the coaches in our club will do that. We'll have sessions where, for example, I'm thinking of... Uh, he's a B-licensed coach. One of our coaches, Rich, he works with our U13s. and uh, So, yeah, U13s, 2011s. And he'll frame the session, but he'll also go inside. He'll show them the video from the game, where they're working on certain principles, good and bad. He'll identify a scenario that occurred in the game. He'll animate it, and then he'll show them the session plan. And they'll all get access to that anyway. You know, it's similar to... I spent a few days uh, recently in some academies. One of them was Austin FC. And what will happen is when the players come into the, the academy, they know immediately what they're working on that night or that what session. They, they know because it's on the board. So they can see on the, the the whiteboard with the markers and they can see the plan. They know exactly what who's involved, the key players, what's the problem that they're going after. They know. So it's a great way of sort of informing and inspiring with them but also the parents get that so that's another way of involving parents in it um, for those that will look at it so there's little things there but you could also you know get players to come up with their own clips get players to watch the game so there's there's loads of ways we can use the game um, to inspire sort of creativity and thinking and different ideas I think we're just lucky aren't we that we're in a, a generation where there's so much footage out there there's so much video you know, just tap into it. A hundred percent. Just conscious of, I've got Tony coming in. Evening, Tony. How's it going, mate? You there, Tony? Yeah, sorry, when it flashed up to say that I could speak, it muted my phone for some reason. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, the the um, the thing about the communication with, with Lizza there is is really interesting and, and obviously I put my little my little point um, in the comments. Um, and it's only slightly tongue in cheek if I'm honest. Um, because it is no matter how much um, no matter how much you inform and share with the parents, I think that 
one of the things that you, you're constantly fighting against, particularly in the grassroots game, although uh, we also had an issue with one or two parents doing it in a pro game, is that they're not really focused on what you are setting out to achieve as a team. They're just concentrating on little Johnny or little Jilly, you know, because that's where, that's their focus, that's their interest. So this club that I'm now working with in in a JPL, I mean, it's still a grassroots game. I don't want to try and make it sound better than it is. Um, I'm sharing with them our syllabus. I'm sharing with them on a weekly basis what training should look like. I'm sharing um, session plans with the caveat that it might not look like that from minute one to minute 60 because I reserve the right to change it as, as I see fit. Um, but it it doesn't have a great deal of effect, if I'm honest. Um, we played against Birmingham City's football in a community team yesterday and they had three coaches. I'm coaching on my own, which is fine by me. Um, but one of their coaches went and stood on the opposite side of the pitch where the parents were. And he worked the touchline more than any of their wide players ever did. He was running up and down, constantly giving instruction. You know, if that's how you want to coach, fine. But I said to the referee, I think this is supposed to be a technical area. Oh, there isn't one marked so he can go where he wants. And I'm like just shrugging my shoulders and uh, and sort of just getting on with it. But, to, you know, to go back to the um, to sort of the topic of the the thing for me, we don't really go down that route of, uh, for us, for our particular group, you... Um, utilising match day to inform practice. We do it the other way around. Because, I've mentioned this before, because we work to a syllabus, um, our our coaching isn't reflective. It, it's kind of in advance in as much as this is what we're going to work on this week and this is what I'll be looking for within the game. I think it's a good point, Tony. The only thing I would say with that is that I don't think that limits you from being able to use the match day to inform it. I think you can have your syllabus set out, you can have your themes and your and your and your agenda set out fundamentally, but whatever's linked to that theme should be a representation of what your players are experiencing on a match day. I think is the key part to take away from this. It's you could have the next, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, you could have the next two weeks working on um, combination play in the midfield third, as an example. Okay, but now when we look at that as a theme, well, it probably makes it easier to have it set in stone. So this is what I'm going to look at because going into that week or going into that block of work, those are the observations that you'll be hopefully going after, whether it's you know watching it after the session on the VO, whether it's watching after the game on the VO, sorry, or whether it's um, actually reflected on the game day itself and say making some notes around, right, okay, what actually happened in relation to the combination play in the midfield third. Those are still the key bits that can inform the practice. And I think that's the key piece that, you know, I really want to kind of highlight here more specifically. But, you know, I do get what you're saying in terms of coaches maybe not having a reactive approach to say, oh, well, this is what happened in the game. So this is now what we're going to do in training. I think it's just, again, trying to step away from that perception and that kind of approach and just have your themes, have your, you know, have your, have your, have your, your scheme of work, your syllabus, if you like, but... What does it look like when you actually examine the theme itself? Not just as a whole, not just as what you want it to look like, but what are the challenges the players are facing? So again, if I use the example of combination play in the midfield third ball, what are the problems they're facing? So as an example, do they struggle 
combining as a three when they're when they're against a three? Do they combine, struggle combining as a three when there's four in front of them? What what's the real challenge there as opposed to what should the theme be? If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, and and that maybe that I've I've grasped the sort of the wrong end of the stick as far as as the title goes. Um, it you know uh, pushing it to to that sort of reflective and right we we just we got beat this week and we conceded three goals from corners so we're going to work for a week on defending corners I, I take your point 100% um so that's perhaps me looking at it from from the wrong lens um but yeah I definitely agree with your point that if if we're going to work on x in training whatever that may be then that you know we need to see uh, we've spoken about this before we need to see evidence on a match day that practice is working out yeah again i don't i wouldn't say you looked at it from the wrong lens in particular because i think there's many coaches that will probably be on this call or preparing for the uefb might be looking at it through that lens of being reactive i think the the key like i said the key thing for me if anyone's going to take away anything is well am i looking at actually what caused that to become a problem so like i said if it was i don't know you know, crossing and finishing. Uh, we we seem to have a real problem with crossing and finishing. But okay, well, first, have you get are you getting enough crosses in for there to be finishes? And how and what's the frequency of that? What type of crosses are we actually getting? And as opposed to how many crosses are we getting? Where do the crosses typically end up? As opposed to um, just putting crosses in, right? Because uh, you know, especially if you're working in a grassroots setting, more likely to happen there there than obviously on a, on a more. <clears throat> on an elite level, if you like, but how often do we actually see co- players actually pick out players to put a cross in or pick out areas, or do they just say, right, I'm a, I'm in a wide area, I'm near the box, I'm just going to put it in the air? Because that often happens, right? And it, it doesn't really give you a key opportunity to identify, right, well, where should the cross go? What, what What's the cross that we're actually working on that we, need, that we need support with, if that makes sense? But just kind of really just examining the detail under the numbers, of the statistics of what's happening, what what's the actual context, and I think that's the real key piece for me. I'm not sure if you've got anything you want to layer on top of that, Gerard, or, if, or Tony, if you've got anything you want to expand on. No, I think these are all good conversations. The only thing I'd probably just pose in there as a question is how much of our work can be pre-planned versus reactive and it's just that balance isn't it and I'm not suggesting that as we know you know there is that danger that you know it's almost oh we're conceded on corners right next week we're wasting time on corners well they're under nine you know they need to get better at (laughs) building the attack and confidence with the ball and that type of thing so you know I'm not saying people do that or the other way you know even if you work with all the players it's like we've conceded on this right we're working on this and it becomes reactionary um, I think there is an advantage to pre-planning your work and working within a process. That's typically how we've worked and I work, which is, okay, what does the next six weeks look like? Let's think about it. It's interesting, you know, I used the example from Austin. I think it's fresh in my mind because I was away at the, the fest in Arizona recently with the MLS. So they work in four-week cycles. And they'll pre-plan their work. But within there, the, the coaches have got the, the license, the flexibility to, to you know, adapt to things. I, I think there's always a balance of doing almost like a 70-30 curriculum versus, you know, where uh, it's the other way. 
So I think there's a danger where it's like week 52, we do this. Week 12, we do this. I think that's quite prescriptive. I'm not saying that anyone's suggesting that. I'm just saying things to consider is how does that prepare the players for their needs? You know, with that mapped ahead, because actually their needs will change, you know, and we've got to change with them and not everyone needs the same meal. Not everyone wants the same meal. If I go out to eat tonight with the kids, I might look at the menu and decide I don't want to have the the, the burger with the with the bacon and the barbecue and all that. I might decide I want something else and that's okay. And I think that's where I think the art of coaching has got to be. If it's too preloaded, does it become too blocked, too linear? And then does that influence learning in, a, in another way, you know, in a, in a negative type of way? So, there's loads of things we've got to factor in. Um, I think what's interesting, which I took from Austin, linked to the B, is within their four-week cycle, they have space structures where they work on their principles, but they work on width in the first week. So everything's about how we're, how we're using the width, whether that's defending or attacking, whatever it is. Second week is more depth. So if it's attacking, it's ways that different ways they're playing forward, how they're going beyond and behind the back line, things like that. And then the third week is mixed. And then the fourth week was competition. And it's even more uh, random and, and um, variable and lots of different challenges in there. And I didn't mind it too much. I thought it was the first time I've seen a club work in that fashion in terms of like uh, space structure over a four-week training cycle. Um, but again, when I asked them feedback, because I knew where my brain was going, I'm, I'm against preloading everything and being too prescriptive. I'm more organic. And um, I said to them, from the surveys that you do with the players, because they send out player surveys, what's the feedback? And what's been interesting is that the players do forget a lot after the first couple of weeks. And their favourite weeks are week three and four, where it's mixed principles, mixed spaces and areas and focus and competition. That's their favourite week. So then my argument then would be, well, how can we spend more time in those realms where it's it's less structured and it's more, you know, adaptive if we're talking about the real game. So just a couple of things to think about, you know, because if I reflect on how, and it's not to say our way is the only way, you know, but some of the stuff I'm doing at our club with, with B licensed and above coaches, every team's programme is different. Some teams might be focusing more on defensive principles with a little focus on attacking. Of course, we work on everything, but there may be a, a laser focus on defending around the box, and that's a programme, but they're, they've still got licence to interleave other topics within there as and when they need. And then other teams are working on other things just because the players are different versus another club uh, within the same setup where they're literally, everyone works on the same thing regardless. You know, a little bit similar to Austin in the first few weeks, I asked him, is that the same across all age groups? And it's, yeah, when they walk out onto the pitch, under 14s, so on and so on, every team is doing the same thing. To me, that's where I think it gets a little bit, well, how are you factoring in the individual needs of the players, you know, in the team context? But just something to, just more questions, really. Yeah, and no, I think just to build on a really, really important one is understanding that on that final point in terms of it being consistent across all, all age groups it can I think it can still work I think it can be consistent it's just understanding that what the practice looks like and the area that it focuses on within the theme if you like 
will fundamentally look different for each age group, but there's nothing wrong with them working on the same team. I think one of the things to really highlight here and just be considerate of it too is if we become too responsive to what's happening on match day and not having a clear kind of pre-planned uh, attempt of what the themes maybe should or could be, we fall into the trap of sometimes never covering anything. Um, and if you just keep focusing on the things that quote-unquote your team needs or your players need, well, they might need it, but fundamentally they probably need everything. It's just what, what do you prioritise and how do you prioritise that? And I think even within that, if you have a scheme of work and a syllabus, no one's saying that you can't move things around. As long as you get around to covering everything that's on that syllabus and on those themes, I think effectively it's just identifying well, what, what's in what's in what's in the top in terms of priority order like if your team are really struggling to you know defend uh, and remain compact in that shape then if that's for whatever reason it's you know week seven or week 15 of your syllabus or your scheme of work then it's okay to bring that forward and shift things around as long as you've identified that you know and provided a, a justification to yourself as to why you're doing that i think having the themes in the first place why are you picking the themes that you're going after what have you, you know what what's that based on um, but also not being wedded to that to the point where you can't actually change or shift outside of it. And I think that's the key piece. I think it's just using, like I said, the games to identify what are the key areas, why are those areas a problem area, what does the strategy or solution look like to kind of solve it, or what do you, or how do you want the team to operate in those spaces. But going full circle back to the top where you mentioned that what if piece, or what if we still, what if we get this bit right, but actually the opposition we're playing with on the weekend are easily able to deal with that solution. What happens then? How well have you prepped your team around that theme and what that could look like as an alternative solution? So just a few considerations for me there um, on that. And I think it's just probably a great opportunity now, George, to kind of signpost everyone in terms of how they can access the CPD hours for this conversation and even just um, a bit of insight on how to how to engage with the, the UEFAB prep webinar that we're putting together on Tuesday night. Yeah, really excited. Obviously, great opportunity to gain some FACPD. I'm going to drop in the link for everyone. We've had incredible engagement since we've been starting this series. You know, so uh, the link is a self-reflection form where it'll ask you for your name. If you're looking to gain this as part of the fan CPD with the FA, then you input your fan number. If not, it's fine. Uh, just briefly talk about what are the, the key reflections for you, whether it be the key takeaways or it could be anything. It's your reflections, um, short and sweet. And then by doing that, you're immediately eligible for one hour CPD as part of this session. You can also use the same form to listen back to and reflect on the previous sessions that we've we've ran as part of this series. And then we have the webinar coming up on Tuesday. Uh, we'll drop a link into the, the Twitter conversation as well on preparing for the UEFA B licence. And that'll be uh, live via Zoom. And again, great opportunity to, to engage, find out more, get two hours CPD. And if you're not able to turn in live, you can still watch it on demand uh, via the app as well. If you want to add on that, Yaz? Yeah, 100%. So I'm just um, resharing the link in the description now or in the comments now, just so that anyone can access the webinar coming up on Tuesday. Um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much it, really. And I think it's just guys, just you know, I think it's great again to see so many new faces as well as some you know repeat ones. Um, whether you've been involved in terms of just leaving a comment or actually been involved in coming up to stage and actually speaking, you know, every bit of participation is valued and welcome. So please do continue engaging with us on that. 
I think it's a great opportunity for us to kind of just, yeah, just sign off on that, Gerard, and just making sure that everyone understands that, you know, this is a growing community. We're here to kind of keep growing um, what we're doing here and making sure that people keep engaging and don't feel obliged to just communicate with us via these spaces. Feel free to reach out and even with one another because I think, you know, we're all here for for the same reason. We want to continue developing, continue learning, getting new ideas and even maybe challenging our existing ideas. So I think it's really important that we do that. So, yeah, um, I've just shared the space, uh, sorry, shared the link for the, the webinar itself in the in the comments. So please feel free to engage with that. Joe has obviously just shared the self-reflection form in which you can gain your CPD hours. There is a deadline on that, guys. So it will be Friday the 15th. Um, so next Friday will be the cutoff point um, for you to engage with that. So if you haven't caught um, either previous spaces that we've done over part of this series, you can still get accreditation in those hours for c completing those ones if you listen back to those and complete the self-reflection forms on that. Um, and then all I'd say is, well, just a final note, in terms of the hours themselves, once they once they go in from us to the county FA, there probably will be a there's typically a usually three to four week turnaround. Just be conscious that it is a Christmas period, um, and people may be off off work during this period. So I will just invite you guys just to give a give us an extra couple of weeks on that. So probably if you haven't got anything updated on your on your fan numbers by the end of January in particular, um, then feel free to reach out to us and just let us know. And we can kind of chase that up for you. Um, but that's pretty much it from me, Jordan. And again, just a final one, guys. Just make sure you're following us. Engage with us. Let us know your thoughts. If there's any particular topics or themes you want to hear discussed on these spaces, then please feel free to let us know on that too. Um, Jared, over to you. No, that's perfect. Nothing to add. Have a great rest of the weekend. Look forward to seeing everyone on the webinar on Tuesday and, and in future spaces. And just thanks for the, the engagement. Well, there you have it guys, another episode of the Coaches Network Podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time guys, take care. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.